35 years ago this month, a French actor played a Scottish immortal, being mentored by a Scottish actor playing an Egyptian immortal dressed as a Spaniard. Roughly 25 years ago, JavaScript appeared, a language about as convoluted as that description of Highlander and whose sequels might be just as suspect. And about three days ago, iOS was dealing with Universal XSS, making us wonder who the real immortal is around here anyway. Which means, this week, we talk with Andrew Vanderstock from OWASP about the journey of the top 10 list, how it's changed, and what 2021 has in store for it. In the news segment, a gathering of TikTok security and privacy items. CICD searches for a kind of magic. Faster fuzzing waits for the hammer to fall. Slack briefly loses its head and more. Grab a sword and stay tuned for Application Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. It's the show to learn the latest tools, techniques, and processes necessary to understand DevOps, application security, and cloud security. Your trusted source for the latest application security news. It's time for Application Security Weekly. When it comes to web app and API security, the choice is simple. You can choose Fastly's security solution that teams will actually use in full blocking mode, just like 90% of their customers. Or you can stick with costly options that you probably just turn off. You can get Fastly's all-in-one platform that protects apps everywhere they live, however they're built. Or departments can agree to disagree. You can go to securityweekly.com forward slash Fastly to learn more. Or you can just wish you had. Security teams need visibility into Linux systems to detect and investigate incidents and protect against unwanted activity. Operations teams are not down with downtime, and with revenue tied to uptime, ops priorities are enterprise priorities. Which is a higher priority? Why not both? Capsulate provides flexible, production-ready infrastructure protection for Linux systems, all without a kernel module. With ops-friendly production security, Capsulate delivers monitoring, detection, and response without adding operational risk or cost. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Capsulate today to request a demo. In a fast-paced tech environment, the potential attack surface increases with each release and new app created. Detectify automates cutting-edge knowledge from trusted ethical hackers into the development pipeline for reliable application security. Go beyond the OWASP Top 10. Check your web apps for over 2,000 known vulnerabilities actively exploited in the wild. Monitor subdomains for potential takeovers and remediate security issues in staging and production. Learn more with a free trial at securityweekly.com forward slash Detectify. Go hack yourself. This is episode 145, recorded March 29th, 2021. I'm your host, Mike Shima. And there can be only one co-host, John Kinsella. Hello, John. Good morning. How are you? Hope everyone's doing well. Good morning. Doing well here and hope everyone else is doing well as well. And for all of you out there doing well, if you have a specific guest or topic that you want us to cover on one of the shows, submit your suggestions for guests by completing the form at securityweekly.com slash guests. We review suggestions monthly and we'll reach out to you once reviewed. If you miss Security Weekly Unlocked, you can now access all of the content on demand by visiting securityweekly.com slash unlocked. You'll find plenty of great talks in the offensive, defensive, and strategy and culture tracks. Andrew is a seasoned web application security specialist and enterprise security architect. 
He is the executive director at OWASP, taking the foundation through organizational change and taking his mission to the next level. Andrew has worked in the IT industry for over 25 years. He has researched and developed the web application security and architecture field since 1998. He is a lifetime member of OWASP, former director, and co-leads the OWASP application security verification standard, and of course, the OWASP top 10 project. An Australian expat of Melbourne and Sydney, he currently lives in the USA with his family. Hello, Andrew, and thank you for joining us. G'day, how are you? Uh, we're, we're, we're doing quite well. And uh, the OWASP top 10, this is quite a familiar topic. And uh, if we're going to talk about things from 30 plus years ago, 20 plus years ago, and um, mm -hmm. even the past week, I think the OWASP top 10 is probably going to be relevant somehow. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe let, let's start with uh, maybe let's start a little bit with the past. I think our mm -hmm. viewers, our listeners, are familiar with the top ten list, but it has changed over time. So, so maybe tell us a little bit of what was your initial motivation just for going after the top ten list itself, and sort of set us up to how we got to here today. So it actually goes back a lot further than that. Um, the very first NIST special publication back in 1976 was more or less the OWASP top 10. Um, it actually had 11 things that you should be considering. And uh, it, it still has one thing that we don't have, which is essentially uh, race conditions or top two items. Um, when I found this out, when I was preparing the OWASP top 10 2017, I was stunned. And it was also a bit disappointing because it meant that these sort of lists, <laughs> the OWASP top 10 style lists don't really work because if something that came out in 1976 still hasn't been addressed, it's going to be around <laughs> forever in one form or another. So interestingly, um, the very first OS Top 10 actually came out in 2003. Uh, it was just called the OS Top 10. It didn't have a version number. The first mm -hmm. version that really gained traction was the OS Top 10 2004. And both of those were put out by um, Jeff Williams and Dave Wickers of Aspect Security at the time. Um, and it was their best guess as to how the OS Top 10 should look based around what they were seeing in their consultancy. And unfortunately, it was relatively prescient because it really, beyond a little bit of reordering here and there, it's had roughly the same things ever since. Um, and now that it's become more or less a standard, even though in 2007 I wrote, <laughs> it's an awareness piece don't use this as a standard, we could do much better than this. So of course, PCI DSS put it directly into the PCI DSS 1.0. Um, and well, that's actually made it much harder for the order to change because people look for these things. Even the advert that we had in the intro talks about going beyond the OS top 10. I want people <laughs> to go beyond the OS top 10. But the reality yeah. is, is that because people look for these things, they find them, therefore it's going to be in the OS top 10. And we need to sort of break that cycle. And I'm hoping we can do something about that this year. I, I, that's a, a actually a bunch of great messages in there. And just that last piece, too, is that because people know to look for it, this is what they'll find. And it's a bit, you know, you know that self-reinforcing and maybe that we're not moving beyond that. And I'm mm -hmm. kind of curious, too, as you've seen uh, people consume the list, um, you know, references it as a standard, despite I th mm -hmm. very explicitly, you know, multiple times trying to say we are not a standard. Um, mm -hmm. How have you seen some positive ways that it has? Has been consumed, you know, whether that's part of a training um, for for you know secure secure coding type of training or part of a tooling list in terms of going after like considering attack surfaces or you know what parts of a coverage of a tech stack, for example. Well, for a start, 
I think the biggest problem with it is that it's a negative thing. Don't do this. And as such, it will always fail. But I really have been pleased with the fact that now many developers do know what the OS Top 10 is, and that's actually their introduction uh, to application security. Um, so the two elements to this, one is that CTOs and um, people who are in charge of application um, development are aware of it, and therefore they frame their application security programs around it. Without that, we wouldn't have the adoption we're seeing with developers, because if developers aren't told to care about something, they won't. Um, it's not because they don't want to learn, it's just that they've got a lot of other things on their plate. So I think the first and foremost thing is that senior developers and uh, leadership have adopted the OS Top 10 as their application security program, or at least the first phase thereof, and that's helped a lot. Um, once we get them and we can start referring to the actual things that will help, like the application security verification standard or the proactive controls, which by the way, if I was doing a developer training program, I'd be going down the, develop the proactive controls route. Um, the reality is, is that that starts getting people interested in application security. Um, and I think that's the two major areas. So I'm really pleased with the progress that we've made about getting visibility of this and the fact that we're well known and most vendors to talk about the OS top 10. Um, therefore, it has importance. Um, but realistically, I'd really like to see it have more impact than it's actually having. Yeah, you make a good point in there, too, that it's if you just, you know, and I'm speaking just as the AppSec industry in general, if you just keep going to developers, keep going to groups and say, don't do that, don't do that. Oh, sorry, don't do that either. And if they come back and say, well, what am I supposed to do instead? And it's the response is just crickets. That's clearly not helpful. And that's possibly mm -hmm. something that's contributing to why we're repeating the list so much. Um, but right. even if we have, you know, even if all of those top 10 seem pretty familiar, um, e even from the, the, the 1976 NIST um, publication, we have seen a little bit of change. So, for example, CSRF has gone out mm -hmm. of vogue, and I don't think that's necessarily that people don't look for it anymore. You can still find them cropping up at bug bounty findings, things like that. Mm -hmm. But that was at least something that there was a frameworks built, ways of killing that off as a bug class. I'm Correct. curious, do you, do you see other... You know, do you see hope? Give us some hope, um, if you will, okay. uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, about other bug <laughs> classes that, that could die off here. Yeah, I mean, realistically, the CRSF is one of those examples where I shoved it in with no data. Uh, I knew 100% mm. of applications when I put it in uh, in 2006 uh, for the 2007 version, every application was vulnerable to CRSF without exception. And because frameworks dealt with it, um, it's gone away. I think XXC is in that same bucket. I don't think mm. XXC will be in the 2021 version. However, the things that led up to, um, I, I'm really hopeful that we can start to get on top of this supply chain problem. Um, it will probably be much greater than A9 this time around, um, but it's a solvable problem using tooling. Um, if people universally adopt the approach that if you have an outdated component, you are going to be working to replace it or update it, um, and if it's a vulnerable component, you do not deploy to production and it's pretty much a code red, you are going to be working to get rid of that component or that vulnerability um, because the build breaks. Uh, in many shops, you get a little award and it's not a good award, but you broke the build. Well, <laughs> if people can figure out who last checked in a, a dependency that was vulnerable um, and then they're responsible for breaking the build, we're going to get a much healthier environment. I think that was another bug class that will hopefully start to be either automatically triaged and fixed 
or alternatively, people will start taking it seriously because it's so easily detectable and so easily fixed. Uh, the excuses of the old days of, oh, but I need to test the entire thing because I'm replacing, you know, patchy commons. And it's like, yeah, you're going to be replacing actually patchy commons because you've got a vulnerability, not because, you know, you need to retest the entire thing. It this sort of addresses another problem, which is testability of code. No, absolutely. And I think that there, there's an aspect there, too, of um, detectability that, as you're describing, just looking at packages, that lends itself very easily to introspection to say, mm -hmm. this is this exists, this is here, let's get rid of it. What I've always found interesting, too, about the OWASP top 10, you know, they have those dimensions of how easy to find is it, how prevalent is it. And mm -hmm. one of the one of the aspects I've always struggled with is I, I love making fun of cross-site scripting. It's just a the, the cockroach of, of AppSec that just will never go away. <laughs> And mm -hmm. it is so easy to find, and yet it is so prevalent. And, and to mm -hmm. my mind, that seems such a, a, a strange um, conflict there that how come we can't just find it more and get rid of it or do something different just to get rid of cross-site scripting? So a lot of, um, I'm going to talk about a couple of things. One is frameworks. Frameworks can be mm -hmm. your friend here. Um, cross-site scripting relies upon developers validating um, every single input no matter where it comes from, and every encoding every single output, no matter where it appears in the correct context. This is a lot of work. That way, yeah. I believe frameworks will be our friend. Um, <clears throat> so I was going to bring up TypeScript, but the reason why I was doing that is because of React and Angular. Um, yes. Both of those frameworks really reduce the prevalence of uh, cross-site scripting because they automatically template away the hard work about putting coding. So even if you don't get input, the parameterization or... Uh, input validation right, you're still sort of protected. Uh, will it get every corner case? No, um, but it's great start. The problem we've got is people still using templating, like server-side templating, um, that doesn't have this automatic encoding. So if you're going down the pathway of choosing a server-side templater, uh, instead of choosing something that's got a very poor security history that deliberately chooses not to deal with cross-site scripting, Choose something that does, like next.js or whatever the case may be, um, or choose a different paradigm altogether, such as React or Angular, that actually automatically deals with cross-site scripting. Um, framework choice matters. People should be choosing more secure frameworks. Absolutely. It makes me, I, I like to riff on that. I, I always love to extol the virtues of React. And to me, it's sort of the React is the, the dread pirate Roberts uh, of, of AppSec and the sense of looking at XSS and saying, sleep well, I'll likely kill you in the morning. Um, just it, And it just gets rid of that vuln altogether. Now, yeah. you've been talking about to, you know, you, you're working on the, the next version of um, the, the, the top 10 list. And we've got a mm -hmm. great, about every three years, um, we get a really good yep. refresh. So, yep. um, you know, obviously, Obviously, you know, you have had a lot of introspection yourself just about how has the top 10 list been used and maybe to be fair a bit, um, you know, abused perhaps, you know, overwrought mm -hmm. as a standard. So what does 2021 start to look like for you as you're reaching out to collect more data, talking to AppSec pr practitioners, CTOs, CISOs for that matter? So we're in the process now. Of, we've got the 220,000 apps worth of data. Um, we need oh, to normalize that and... <laughs> I would like to be able to anonymize it so that people can actually replicate our, our research um, and also use it for their own purposes because, well, something that's general like the OS top 10 may not necessarily be the right, you know, view of data compared to, say, for example, a health app or um, a game 
Um, so being able to interpret that data in a different way might be very useful. Um, but fundamentally, I want to make a few a real huge change. One is I want to make it mobile friendly. Uh, all the previous versions have been in PowerPoint um, or Word, mm -hmm. and that is good for when you're printing out a copy of the OS Top 10. But most people who need to just refer to a bit of the OS Top 10 are going to be trying to look up to, on their mobile device or tablet, and all of a sudden it's horrible. Uh, on a mobile phone, it's unconsumable. Um, I'm still working with my colleagues on the best way to do this, um, but I'm really committed to actually having a mobile-friendly version. Um, for the other parts of it is my co-leads, uh, Brian, Neil, and Torsten, um, we've got to start writing soon. And so we'll be looking for the community's help. As we start writing, we'll be writing in GitHub so you can see exactly what we're getting up to. Um, but we will be basically relying upon the community for, you know, peer reviewing our work, but also to uh, translate it and also to make sure that we're actually getting the details right because we're not professional developers and there may be a better way of addressing something in 2021 than there was in the past. I think the, the the you know I've seen so many of the OWASP projects um, uh, projects on GitHub. It's been really fun to see that that basically that work out in the open for documentation, especially especially more so than you know this is just code that's being worked on there. Um, I, I'm curious too as, as you're doing this, as you're working on, as you're mentioning, um, reaching out to the community for support, both for translation as well as where is you know some good expertise on ways to to extol here's how to develop against something or here's how to prevent which also leads to you know has at that time with the, the asvs so as you're looking at this top 10 how are you kind of mentally positioning that or even explicitly positioning that with the the asvs or the proactive controls that you were mentioning as well yeah, absolutely. Uh, last week we had a meeting with um, the Linux Foundation and a couple of other folks. They're working on a project called the Common Requirements Enumeration, which will basically be a way of determining if this is in the OS top 10, this is a match for PCI, this is a match for 800-53, this is a match for the ASVS, whatever those may be. Um, so for folks who really care about mappings and not repeating themselves, this is going to be huge for them. We're hopeful that we'll be able to get the CRE into the OS top 10. But the main reason why we want to do that is actually to make it easy for people to find the information they're looking for. I do want to make it more developer-focused. And so people running AppSec programs can find the cheat sheets for prevention. People who are working from testing point of view can find the how to test for cheat sheet. Um, for those who are actually interested in writing unit tests, you can find the ASVS tests that you need to write to determine automatically from a unit integration or end-to-end -end testing, that this is actually secure. Um, those are the things that I really hope for this new version and make it a lot simpler by having the CRE linkage so that instead of having 15 or 20 links, you've got the one requirement, which then leads you to the view that you're actually interested in. That sounds, <clears throat> excuse me. That you know, that that sounds a, a great way too. That the ideas are making the the top ten list more consumable, and it would also sounds like a relevant to the audience. And I think mm -hmm. you know some of the the subtext of what you were saying is that the audience isn't really necessarily you know appsec practitioners. Just to remind ourselves, hey, you know, share bits of trivia. You know, which one is a four? Which one is a three? Um, mm -hmm. Tell me the three different types of the type one, type two, type zero process. 
website scripting. Those are pretty meaningless um, when yep. you're a developer who just needs to say, oh, contextual output encoding. That makes sense. Hopefully, you know, uh, I, I joke, I say I'm lazy. It's not so much laziness, it's just efficiency. And I'm going to use a framework mm -hmm. to take care of that for me. Um, so uh, there are, um, and I'm trying to figure out where to go with this. Uh, the, my brain is going a couple different possible directions of, of questions here. Uh, let me bring it back to one in terms of that idea of perhaps frameworks and what frameworks are addressing can address. And, and the mm -hmm. question in this sense is, are there certain things that don't make it onto the OWASP top 10 list because they're perhaps mm -hmm. um, too narrowly focused? Or maybe you just don't have beyond the anecdotal data to explain them, but they are concerns that you have, or, you know, similar to the supply chain that are like, I would love this problem to be solved or if you're in this particular context, whether it's a type of application or a type of tech stack, here's a really important problem to solve. What would be that, you know, number eleven or twelve that's on your personal, um, top, uh, you know, top ten list? So I would actually say what would be zero, uh, and that's privacy okay. and application architecture. So I really would like to be able to say that if you don't have a threat model, you don't have an application security architecture, uh, your application's insecure. Um, if you aren't thinking about user privacy, you're going to be vulnerable to it because you haven't designed for it. Um, for example, privacy laws are way more complicated than don't expose people's data. It's actually, you can't corrupt other people's data as well. So you should be writing your tests like, as a user, I should be able to edit my profile. As a user, I should not be able to view or edit anyone else's profile. It's the same use case but it's actually really important to actually have documented that. And the only way to do it is to actually do a threat model to make sure that you understand the privacy laws that are associated with it. The ASVS tries to encompass this. And so to bring it back to the frameworks comment that you actually had, I would really like to say that um, general contractors don't need to know engineering. Um, general contractors generally don't need to know architecture, but they need to know how to build that. I think a lot of developers are in the case of the general contractor. They need to know about architecture and engineering so they can get the information when they need it. But professionals in the area absolutely need that level of uh, competency. And I think frameworks in particular, they need to not be using the OS top 10. They need to be using the ASVS and consulting with um, yeah. security professionals to threat model their framework and eliminate bug classes so that everybody who consumes that then benefits. But even after then, I would, uh, I would have to say that we tried with a3, which is sensitive data exposure. We got rid of the useless information disclosures like stack traces. Who cares? No one cares. No one's going to yes. lose any money or sleep over it. But if it's about people, then we do care. There are literally hundreds of millions of dollars of fines. If you look at what, you know, the exposure of um, the financial, um, you know, the credit provider, um, the credit score provider back in 2017, that cost them over $100 million to solve. They ran out of the cyber insurance dealing with that issue. So privacy has a true cost to it. And if you were going about impact, privacy would be A1 all year long. No, no question in my mind. We need to change the OS top 10 into what is the true impact and how do you prevent that? But it's a lot of soft skills. The OS top 10 started out being a very hard this is a vulnerability like SQL injection and you can lose access to your machine. You can do remote code execution. Yeah, you don't get fined for that. You get fined for losing people's information. So I think some meta issues are 
architecture and privacy. If we get those two into the top 10 2021, I'll be very pleased. I so absolutely you know love that. Oh, go ahead, John. Sorry, stick my nose in. Um, you know what's interesting about what you're just talking about there, um, at least to me, uh, is we, we talked about, you know, things are slowly, really slowly dropping off top 10 over the last 20, 30 years. But it feels to me like the um, amount that people have to juggle is actually increasing. Um, and I think that, you know, we jokingly were talking about, you know, top 11, um, but you just gave two really great cases. And, you know, as a someone with the title of chief architect, I, I appreciate you mentioning architecture. Um, but does does that, I, I guess the question I'm trying to ask here is, is does that create a, a concern for you that, um, you know, people, the same number of folks, well, relatively speaking, that we had before now are having to, you know, try and hold on to more stuff and deal with more things. Um, is, is, the is there a concern that we're not shutting down enough of those things like cross-site scripting early enough or not early enough, but we're mm -hmm. not getting rid of some of these problems so we can um, try and keep up, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. I think we need to make the developers' lives easier for bug classes that can be solved. So for example, if you're doing systems programming, you should be using Go or Rust today because it's much safer mm -hmm. from a memory point of view. By not having to deal with malloc and string boundaries and all of those off by one errors that those uh, unsafe languages like C or C++ have, you actually save the developers time. They can work faster because they're not having to deal with the mechanical underlying you know, ISA. Um, what we want to do is get to a position where some of these things in application security are not a problem. For example, ORM solved SQL injection for the most part, replacing it with idols instead. What we need people to do is actually start having to not have to deal with idols now because we pretty much don't have a lot of SQL injection anymore because of frameworks. We need frameworks to step up to make it harder to shoot yourself in the foot. So developers have more time to spend on the things that truly matter, um, like secure design, enterprise architecture patterns that are actually safe. Um, we want to basically get to a position where developers are thinking about the high value business problems and not necessarily low level security problems that could have been solved by a framework. So that's, I'm, I'm Glad you went back in that direction and brought this up because I was thinking earlier, but I didn't get a chance to open my mouth. It's really easy for those of us in, you know, relatively new applications or startups or something that's young to, to switch to a different framework or to pick the best one, hopefully, or, or excuse me, pick a, um, a, a solid choice when we're starting a new project. Um, same with the language. Uh, large organizations like, you know, Microsoft is rewriting some of their stuff in Rust. Um, Linus has been in the news getting quoted the last few weeks talking about being open to the idea of having Rust in parts of the Linux kernel. How does um, some of these larger, more legacy companies that have all this, um, I'll, I'll, I'll lovingly use the phrase baggage, but how does someone like them start adopting? And Because and, I think that's probably part of the problem. Like they're so busy playing whack-a-mole. Mm -hmm. They see that there's, you know, React is out there or, or you know, something new in, in um, view or pick any of these things, but they just, how do they, how, I mean, you really, it's a re-architecture. How do they, how do you deal with that from an AppSec point of view? Honestly, it'd be really good for people to start thinking about architecture a lot earlier than they do. Um, mm -hmm. Startups are actually a good example to my mind. I'm actually working on a piece of code at the moment with a, um, I play a game called Elite Dangerous. It's fantastic. I really enjoy it. There's a new version of it out today. Um, the, it relies a lot on third-party um, utilities to get the most out of it because it's a very, very large game. Um, the utility 
is written by a guy who's into startups. And now he's a really solid coder, but his architecture is, well, let's put it this way. We've had to turn it off today because of the new game. Um, retrofitting the new game's output, it has a journal and you've got to interpret that journal correctly, otherwise it'll corrupt your data. Um, because we didn't go down the clean architecture path from the very first go, because it was quick and simple to do an MVP and that, that MVP is still the sort of exists today. Um, I really, excuse me, I'll just, uh, um, we really do need, goodness gracious. Uh, excuse me. I'm sorry, someone was trying to call me and it really disrupted me. I hope you can edit. If it's not, that's okay. Um, basically, um, we're going to have to re-architect. And I think to a certain point, if more people knew about things like clean architecture and um, you know, making sure that everything was loosely coupled, I think application architecture, even if you have what's called legacy code, goes away as being a problem. It just does. I mean, essentially, if you need to change out your display framework, you're not just you're not displacing a Java or a COBOL that sits in the background that runs the world. You're actually fixing the thing that, you know, could con cause you great concern elsewhere, uh, such as changing the display layer from struts 1.3 to React. That's a huge jump. And with clean architecture, it's sort of doable, whereas with older architectures, it's not. Yeah, and I like that direction too of describing, especially going, describing uh, the the attention to detail in architectures. Are you do you have components that are, as you said, loosely coupled versus the the grand monolith that could be mm -hmm. even um, not legacy, but a monolith that's just really difficult to decompose and now is taking a lot of you know time and developer effort just to figure out how to corral it into something that's more easier to work with and more usable in, in the long term. And I yeah. I, I want to tie that back a little bit to what you were saying um, too, sort of the 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 OWASP, the, the A0, if you will, or perhaps the, the A1 of that concept of privacy and security, because uh, in, in our upcoming news segment, we're going to talk about um, Slack and you know, the, the recent mm -hmm. Slack feature that they were going to open up. Anyone could Slack anyone else. And uh, I think a, a not too subtle point to make there is that you could have a very secure application per the OWASP top 10. You've addressed a lot, all of those categories yet still have an insecure application or call it an unsafe application, perhaps to use a slightly different language for your user mm -hmm. base. And I think that really ties into, do you just have threat models that are specific to the attacks you know of and to technical attacks? Or do you have threat models that are, reflect your user base? Um, and the user base could be social interactions. It could be fraud. If you're, you know, a, a payments-based application, you know, it's, it's applicable to many um industries in many different uh, situations and contexts. So that one, I, I really like to, I really liked how you put that emphasis there. And um, even, even if we don't get a lot of that in the OWASP top 10, I think it sounds like a lot of what the ASVS is getting to is starting to have that reasoning about what is your app doing with the data it's collecting? Is it being a good steward of that data, protecting it both on security as well as those privacy components? So I'll come back to the oldest part of application architecture, it's conceptual integrity. I think Fred Brooks talked about it in the Mythical Man Month. You've got to have a good understanding of what your app is doing. And if you're going to change what that app's fundamental 
you know, I, I know why they're doing this in Slack. They're actually trying to compete with Discord where you can absolutely do contact anyone today and then you can add them as a friend at a future point. Um, I understand why they're trying to keep up with the Joneses, but if Slack's conceptual integrity is not to do that, then any sort of change along those lines needs to be well communicated. Um, and as you actually start to understand what was, we'll just use Slack as an example here. I'm not saying Slack's a bad app because we use it. Um, it actually runs the OS uh, community um, Slack. Mm -hmm. The reality is, is that all of these things come with trade-offs and it's about culture. And if the culture is different, then you may be losing that something special about your product versus some other product. Um, I sort of hark back to the original Skype. The original Skype became almost unusable and people don't use it today because they went so far astray from their original conceptual integrity. What, what was the culture of, um, of Skype back in the day? Um, and if you think about Slack, Slack has more of a corporate, a corporate background within developer teams. And what they should probably be thinking about is the culture around development teams rather than uh, Discord, which is more gamer-focused. Uh, I do realize they're trying to chase a market, but at the same time, those two cultures are very different. And how do you keep conceptual integrity intact? That's not necessarily a security problem until you get to privacy. No, that's a great point. I think um, I th conceptual integrity also helps perhaps with my riff on Highlander and Highlander 2 um, and the director's cut or not. Um, mm -hmm. But joking aside, um, you know, we're, we're getting to, to, to the end here. And you mentioned you, you made a few comments earlier about, um, you know, reaching out. You're looking to the community mm -hmm. to help with the OWASP Top 10 2021. Yeah. Um, they can, of course, hit you at OWASP.org. There's the GitHub repo that where all the work is doing. And I'm sure you're mm -hmm. welcome to, um, you know, pull requests, and et cetera. Um, I guess let me ask, you know, is there a, a other ways that you've that people can, you know, join, interact, support it through the Slack um, uh, channels that you have set up? Or, and maybe this is yes. more specific to, um, are there areas where you haven't gotten a lot of traction from the community or, or areas that, that um, don't get as much attention as you'd love to see that would be great for people to come in and um, th throw some weight behind just because it could use more attention? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we encourage everybody to participate. Um, this is one of the things that I actually did talk to a couple of project leads around um, a little bit before, where there's just a single project lead. When I first came into the OS Top 10 again in 2017, I was the only project lead because the previous one was upset with the way the community was treating him and that was very fair. Um, the community was not treating him well. Um, but I immediately appointed more leaders. But the only way to get more leaders is to look at who contributed and so I encourage everybody to get involved. OWASP is a community-run organization uh, for the benefit of the entire community, including the software development community. I'd really enjoy data scientists coming to validate our uh, premises. Um, the reality is, is that we need to normalize data because some people are giving us hundreds of thousands of records, other people are giving us 30. Um, we don't want to have that overwhelmed because the quality of the results are infinitely better with the 30 than the hundreds of thousands of records. So we need to give some sort of allowance there, but do you agree with our analysis? That's something that we need to have general consensus on. So I'm really interested in people who understand data science to come in and help us. I also, I really want people to come in and help us write. If the English is confusing and interpretable in many different ways, it's very difficult to comply with it. And it's also impossible to translate. I'd really like people to come in and actually tell us when um, something we've written is so vague that this 
it, you may as well not even have it there, but what are you going to do about it? And then once you actually get to that concrete level, can it be translated? We really do need to have that advice early on. I love that. And I think, you know, I, I don't think it could be emphasized enough to, to, to say that clear, concise communication, as I'm stumbling over my words here, um, is actually, you know, th that's a skill. It's hard to do. For, mm -hmm. And for as much as we, maybe the, the AppSec industry, you know, in an unhealthy aspect, makes fun of developers for making these common mistakes across site scripting or programming mistakes, um, just being able to write just being able to go beyond don't do that and understanding the difference between ah do this instead or here is a choice of frameworks that can help as well as here's some clear guidance on what we actually mean about why this is a problem or here are how here are some ways to interpret how to address it um great skills so th that's a fantastic message andrew um thank you for mm -hmm. bringing that to us no problems anytime and thank you for joining us today. Yeah, this was a really fun conversation that gave us a good history of OWASP as well as, um, a, I think, a really good positioning of what the what the top ten list, you know, how it fits into to a, a much larger program and and thought process to privacy, security, and, and systems architecture, just as you were describing. Absolutely, I think that's going to be a focus going forward as we start to eliminate some of these other bug classes. Um, I'm really looking forward to the day that cross-site scripting is dead and doornail, just like SQL injection is more or less today. It still happens. It should, it should be rare. <laughs> it should be rare. And uh, I have my fingers crossed that that day comes soon. Absolutely. Thank you again, Andrew. I want to thank John as well. And thank everyone for listening to us. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and return with news of the week. Application security is hard when security is separated from your DevOps workflow. Security has traditionally been the final hurdle in the development lifecycle. Iterative development workflows can make security a release bottleneck. With GitLab, security is built into the CI-CD process. Every code commit is automatically scanned for security vulnerabilities in your code and its dependencies. Results are delivered to the developer in their native workflow for rapid remediation. Learn how GitLab enables DevSecOps. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash GitLab for a 30-day free trial. Cloud Native Development presents new challenges for security teams. Ephemeral workloads are scattered across services, and it's hard to identify resources, monitor configurations, and ensure compliance. Prisma Cloud by Palo Alto Networks is a comprehensive cloud-native security platform, delivering full-stack protection for multi- and hybrid cloud environments. It provides deep visibility, threat detection, and data security, as well as protection for hosts, containers, and serverless while enforcing policy guardrails. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Prisma Cloud to gain control over your cloud security. We're proud to announce CISO Stories, a new podcast series in partnership with Cybersecurity Collaborative and Cyber Reason. CISO Stories features the candid perspectives and experiences of frontline senior security executives and dives deep into timely security topics. CISO Stories is hosted by Todd Fitzgerald, VP of Cybersecurity Strategy at Cybersecurity Collaborative, and Sam Curry, Chief Product and Security Officer at Cyber Reason. Listen weekly as they speak with extraordinary CISOs by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash CSP. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. I'm your host, Mike Shima, joined by John Kinsella. Do you want to stay in the loop on all things Security Weekly? Visit securityweekly.com slash subscribe to subscribe on your favorite podcast catcher or our YouTube channel. Sign up for our mailing list and to join our Discord server, where we have lots of fun chats. 
Our next live webcast will be on April 29th at 11 a.m. Eastern, where you will learn how to prepare for modern ransomware attacks. Visit securityweekly.com slash webcasts to register now. If you missed any of our previous recorded webcasts or technical trainings, they're available for your viewing pleasure at securityweekly.com slash on demand. And that brings us to a quite a busy um, application security news week, I think. We've got a lot of articles today, and there was even, um, speaking of supply chains, or we're about to speak about supply chains, um, even PHP I was reading about this morning had some um, um, malicious code commits that were essentially some backdoors, and they've moved from their Git repo into uh, GitHub. To, to handle that. And I had originally picked out another article that was referencing SolarWinds. And um, just to not to talk about SolarWinds specifically, um, but more about continue to riff on that about what does it actually mean to change your, you know, to improve your SDLC to prevent these types of um, malicious code being introduced into your systems. And um, so real quickly, uh, the, this article has, um, it, it's a bit light on content, but it does link to some uh, discussions uh, that, that, that SolarWinds is having. And they basically pull out a, a couple of things that they're doing that I think are templates that other companies can think about, figure out how to adapt for themselves. That template is move to a cloud identity. So what's your single source of truth, if you will, for your identity of users as well as systems? Um, of course, having MFA deployed everywhere, ideally token paste, something that is FIDO supported, and doing risk, as they describe it, risk-based authentication authorization, which is essentially a zero trust type of security model. And um, I think one other aspect they were talking about is part of that too, is that moving to the cloud also means they could spin up just-in-time build systems, which is both in the aspect of you have infrastructure as code that could describe what your build system is ostensibly supposed to look like every time it's spun up to build and deploy a new code, as well as it diminishes the capability of persistence from attackers. So attackers aren't going to be able to, the, the utility of persistence on a um, build system that's only spun up for build A, but not for build B, is going to be much harder to um, pull off a significant attack that might be like that uh, solar winds attack. So a couple lessons to be learned there, a couple things that I think could be generalized and adopted from other organizations. Um, but I think that is a horse that I've possibly um, beaten to death enough. I don't know, um, John, any, any additional kicks you want to get in there or should we move on? I'm I'm curious. So let's see. Um, talking about articles we're not covering, um, I heard <laughs> last week that uh, the SMS attacks we talked about previously mm. that were allowed, but the marketing company allowed to uh, um, sort of uh, right. uh, mirror your, your SMSs to use the phrase. Apparently, the telcos have stopped that. Um, so maybe, you know, for another next week or two, SMS 2FA isn't too bad, but we know they're going to come up with something else. Um, so still, you know, as you said, Tokens are to tokens are your friend, or at least soft tokens. Um, so here's my question on this one: Is creating parallel build systems, and he's saying like two or three, um, yeah. is is yeah. that is that actually going to give you a security gain, or is that sort of to use the phrase security for security's sake? Is that actually going to make a difference? The amount of, I mean, think about. Um, you know, as your code get as your code base gets more complex, and the way you do your testing, your your builds, your releases, all this stuff, now you want to duplicate that across two or three different systems. 
that sounds uh, like, well, it definitely is a lot of work, but is there, what's the value behind that? That's what would be curious to see. I did scratch my head a little bit at that because it sounds like you know, we want to triangulate you know, three different build processes and make sure that each of them um, reproduces the same artifact with the same signature or at least signatures that prove integrity throughout the process and the same hash that says they were identical. But it does, um, you know, I, I love to quote my movies, old movies for that matter, it does sound like a, there's a quote from Contact it's some, along the lines of, why not build two at twice the cost? And um, I think that kind of speaks to what you're getting at is this, is this just security to have a lot of parallel builds to make it harder for attackers? But is that the right, is, is that the right cost um, transfer to attackers? Or are you subsuming a lot of that cost yourself just by that complexity? So a little bit of head scratcher. And I couldn't find any more details on what that architecture actually was supposed to mean um, and how, you know, what the security properties and choices went into that architecture. Um, but as we learn more, we'll, we'll figure that out and maybe come back here and see if that's something to emulate or something you know, to continue to question and say, what threat model is this addressing? And are we just trying to address the attack that we know about um, in, in that spirit of don't do this, what we were talking about with Andrew last session, um, or is in the spirit of there is a strength here in the design of the system that actually gives us some additional ben beneficial properties that don't come at an exorbitant cost. Um, other things that are exorbitant costs, um, one would be a um, talking about a, a, not so much the um, moving on from supply chains, but I thought was pretty interesting uh, was the TikTok and Douyin, um, two applications that Citizen Lab, um, a great organization out of um, academics out of Canada, who did a technical security and privacy analysis of these applications. And one, it's, uh, I think, of interest if you were following TikTok. TikTok in, in particular, um, you can learn about just what it technically, what could you learn from reverse engineering that. But I think too, as just a kind of reference and as kind of a, a way to model, how do you reverse engineer and present and communicate an analysis of an application. Um, I think that's a good template to emulate. Um, and it ties in, I think, very well to the last segment we were having, the discussion we were having with, with Andrew about there's a, a good skill in communicating, we found these security problems, or for that matter, we didn't define security problems, but here is what we did to look at, here was a methodology we followed. And um, I thought this was a pretty good write-up. And um, nothing too surprising, I think, other than a lot of bots want and want to use TikTok, just as probably a lot of bots want to use Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, for um, abusive or user-friendly use cases. And um, they have, in, in this case, another thing that stood out was TikTok had some um, signatures that were using to essentially sign requests, making it more difficult to spoof and impersonate um, legitimate traffic. So nothing too exciting there other than um, a great reference of tools and technique for reverse engineering an Android app and a good example of, document, of documentation, a way of communicating findings. It's... Um it's a good write-up, yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I thought you were just putting this in here to get all the kids to watch ASW, but okay. Um, <laughs> no, they, we've got to no, do an ASW it, it, dance to get on TikTok properly. So <laughs> we're still working on that. Uh, I had TikTok installed for a week or two, and it's it's a lot of fun, at least to watch. I'm sure to do the dances too. But um, as a security guy, I can't have it on my phone. Um, and, and this is sort of 
they you know it's this is a good write up um uh i i think for me the it was a second bullet in the summary uh while these things and i'd never heard of doyen actually but um while these things because you know i have gray hair um these things uh do not appear to be explicit overly malicious behavior that that's compared to malware that's not um a ringing endorsement for something i want on my phone uh <laughs> unfortunately uh so and but what's you know it's interesting you said it it's it's not there's nothing sexy going on here it is good it is a you know how many times can we say it is a good write-up um and i think it's good for people to think about this is a you know we talk about frameworks we talk about um different ways you can go through these tests here's sort of from an educational point of view it's it's interesting to look at this and think about okay how would i use this methodology on on my app um or applications uh the the thought, though, which is interesting to me is while these guys might not be um, application security isn't always something to prevent attackers coming towards you, right? Sometimes it can be used, I don't want sort of offensively from the point of view of you want to make sure that your system is tight enough that someone else can't do things which would give you a bad name. So I think that's sort of what they're doing. And from that point of view, that's um, it, it, it's sort of not quite militarizing it, but it's our, our weaponizing it. Uh, but it's um, still they're taking care of number one. So I think that's sort of interesting how they're doing it. It's interesting how they're doing it. And it speaks to the, there's an underlying theme that comes that came out of the first segment with, with Andrew talking about the OS top 10 of the, the distinction between tech, addressing technical security issues, flaws that you might find in the OWASP top 10, so to speak. Um, but there's also an aspect of data handling. Who owns the encryption keys? How is data encrypted? When and where can it be decrypted? And just looking at a client-side technical analysis of TikTok or something like that won't necessarily um, reveal how that might be misused or address some of the, the what might be other privacy or censorship concerns. So I think that there's, there's a good angle there to mention Here's a good. Here's how we position. What can we discover about this application? And so let's actually have a good evidence-based discussion around the the technical aspects. Is it collecting all of the data that we think it's collecting, or is it just, you know, did someone just kind of mistakenly misunderstand some some decompiled um, APKs? But also point out what are the threat models we're concerned about, and the threat models aren't necessarily most concerned about are there third-party bots using this. Um, that's probably more concerned for ByteDance and protecting the integrity of their systems or rate limiting access to it. It's not so much about is this hard to reverse engineer. It's more about what how data what data is being collected, how it's being misused. So I think that is one of the things that also highlight as part of this conversation, um, the, the meta conversation I think we're having around top ten list security and product safety um, that we'll also get to in Slack, but maybe I want to save that for a little bit at the end because we have some other technical items here to hit on. So um, try not to monologue too much like a movie villain. I will hit another example of um, just communication. And this was um, analyzing attacks taking advantage of exchange server vulnerabilities. Now, quite honestly, um, I, I don't want to get to harp on this too much because I don't know that many people out there are running Exchange servers, but if you have been, please just migrate to the cloud. Um, just as PHP is learning this morning, you don't need to run your own Git server. You know, you don't just like you don't need to run your own mail server in this day and age. Hosted providers can just at the very least take care of patching for you. But the reason this article stood out to me is that it was referencing the MITRE attack framework. So I thought this was a really good framework as a lingua franca of how do we talk about ways that, in this case, Kubernetes 
um, environments are attacked. Um, and I thought that was really neat, as well as this was showing just some examples of post-exploitation within um, uh, within environments. And, and so it's sort of the, the, the aspect of don't worry if you are not running an exchange environment, but do a pre-mortem. What would a post-exploitation activity look like on your environment? Um, could someone write to an arbitrary file? Could someone launch you know, an arbitrary command? Are you watching for syscalls? Are you blocking syscalls? Um, are you monitoring you know, user access? These types of things. So uh, it, it, this is more of an exercise in pre-mortem as I would like to um, do it there. And with that, um, I think I'm getting pulled off stage. And I need to hand this over to John to talk for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> you oh, know, no, I've got nothing to say. Go ahead. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, it's so it took me, hell man, probably six or 12 months, if not longer, after attack came out to just in general the attack framework before I sat down and said, why, are, why is everyone talking about attack? So I suspect I'm not the only one in that boat. Um, this Kubernetes version came out. Um, the original version last year, and there's an update on it. I think they've got a container one too. They're, mm -hmm. What's interesting about attack to me is that they're they're doing these based off what they're seeing in the wild. Um, so they'll they'll actually they've got a pretty decent partnership. Obviously, you know, Mitre's been around for a while, and obviously Microsoft and everyone helping with this. So those guys go out to their their friends and family and and say, hey, give me some of the examples of what your what your folks are seeing come in 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 real world. So that's that gives us a lot of um, heft, a lot of, you know, if you go back internally in your company and you're talking, you need to get uh, um, buy-off from uh, management or executives to be able to say, hey, look, we need to increase, we need to spend time or budget improving our security because of these things. And this is what people are not just worth thinking is theoretical. This is what people are actually seeing out in the wild. Um, so the list itself, um, I don't think anything was too shocking to me. I mean, if you're running a Kubernetes dashboard, that, that doesn't seem like something people do. Well, people should be doing in production. Ha ha. Should be. Um, but sort of the overall list is interesting. Um, and I guess they depreciated that. Um, but it, it's definitely worth, if you're doing containery stuff, and again, as we said, don't be running your own uh, um, exchange. Don't run your own Kubernetes unless you've got a really good reason. Um, but even if you do a hosted Kubernetes service from one of these providers, there's still going to be things you have to at least be aware of, if not actually harden and tighten and do things. So um, this is a, a, well, there's a lot covered on the subject, and we're yapping about it a lot here. Uh, it's a pretty simple thing to sort of take a glance over and get a read through um, uh, at least the table and sort of figure out what are, what are people thinking about, and then from there, see what catches your attention and, and drill down into that. Yeah, I think the, the one other thing I'll add to this too is that I, there there is the aspect of are we are you working on the the Kubernetes ecosystem, um, and looking at the attack matrix, can you get you know can you kill off a bug class? And um, so there was a, an aside here in the article that's saying you know as a version three, Helm has changed its operations, so now by default. Um, it's gotten rid of you know one one of those small blocks within the attack framework. So that's a good thing because yep. now we actually have drum roll please a secure default and that's a good thing. And I think that's much better to, as a callback to our great conversation with Andrew is rather than say, well, don't run your access Kubernetes dashboard, don't do this, don't do this other thing. Instead, it's like, oh, 
just roll out Helm and you now actually don't need to go and now reconfigure it to be secure. It just came secure out of the box. And I think that's a smart thing um, uh, to, to look towards. You know, one more on that, um, since you mentioned secure by default, the the six security guys um, on the Kubernetes side, uh, they really care about that a lot. They're putting a lot of evidence that it's, I've been sort of sitting on the side Watching some of the discussions there, um, the pod security policy replacement has gone into a, um, uh, an enhancement protocol. So that's making progress to actually have a secure default um, security policies on some of these things or uh, um, uh, control controls around those. Uh, but frequently, one of the things which keeps coming up around a lot of the Kubernetes aspects, at least in core Kubernetes, is making sure that you know what's there by default um, doesn't allow someone to shoot themselves in the foot. Um, so lots of progress being made there, but still, once again, don't just trust other people. Be familiar with this. <laughs> so let, let's shift now to some other fun things. Uh, John, you found a fun article about one of my favorite topics, parsing. Um, this was a little bit of a, a kind of a neat, surprising error. So, so what happened here with NetMasks and NPM libraries? <sighs> yeah. Um, so I don't know how well known this is i don't think it is uh i mean i've been doing networking for i don't want to count how many years too many years uh i didn't realize that at least for most modern parsers and by modern i think it's probably always been there this way if you take an ip address um 127001 you put a zero in front of that uh that gets parsed as a completely different ip so that's now octal format uh for, for c coders out there they'll recognize that uh but that means that uh, 127.001, if you'd make that 0.127.001, gets turned into, um, in decimal, that's 87.0.0.1. So totally different IP address. Um, and it turns out most of the uh, resolvers out there uh, are aware of this, unlike me, and they've coded it right, correctly. Uh, there's a library for um, uh, Node, uh, the NPM system. There's a library called Net, uh, NetMask that like me didn't know this. Uh, so if you, what, so what the problem with this is, is if you're able to submit a request into a, um, a Node.js system and it's doing some amount of parsing on there. Uh, and the, the fun one is if you've submitted, what's the other IP, it's down here. Um, uh, 0177.0.0.01. Uh, you know, that just looks like some IP address on the internet, right? Just scrape off the one and go ahead and process it as usual. It turns out that's octal for localhost, 127001. Uh, long story short, what that means, what this little simple parsing issue of not understanding how to convert that from octal to decimal uh, means that you could probably do something like server-side request forgery. You could, you know, um, if that if that IP address is being used for, you know, maybe to download an image off the internet, and you can now have a way to say, hey, uh, actually connect to the local host. Um, things get interesting at that point. So, uh, you know, it, it's, we trust these libraries because individually we're not going to figure out all this stuff by ourselves. but it's still, um, you know, something for, there, there's what seems like super simple uh, IP address parsing, uh, leaving V6 out of it, just talking about V4. Um, there's always these little edge cases and, and gotchas that you got to be aware of. So I thought this was interesting from that point of view. 
definitely a fun one. And I know for for those of you out there who've gotten into the weeds of cross-site scripting attacks, there's also a long history of um, URL obfuscation and throwing um, octal addresses as well as dotless addresses into um, um, XSS payloads just to see what browsers uh, support them, how they interpret them and parse them. So definitely the lesson of normalize your IP addresses and then do your security testing or, you know, security validation on them. And uh, look out for SSRF, especially for cloud environments. Um, also look out for undocumented x86 commands. Um, so we have, I think, a pair of articles that might go, to, go, to, go together well. I was looking at something that was looking at um, Intel processor trace um, related to fuzzing. But John, you were diving into some really crazy microcode. Um, and I'm going to throw this one back over to you to start us off with because it's, <laughs> it, it's definitely getting uh, some move, move bites in there. Yeah, so this is uh, a a fun one, and I I didn't realize we were sort of our, our brains were sort of thinking parallel the last week or so. Um, uh, story off Hackaday, uh, someone's been it, it it's so fuzzing from fuzzing is interesting from let's sort of set this up a little bit fuzzing from a, a CPU instruction set is sort of uh, you know that that can be a uh, um, a rewarding process for the right individual. If you're able to find an undocumented micro code in there or an undocumented CPU instruction, um, has it been tested right? So you go through, once you find something undocumented, it's like, okay, can I use it to my advantage? Is this untested or maybe not tested enough so it's not, might have higher chance of bugs? All sorts of different things in there. Or maybe just, you know, you suddenly have God access on a CPU. Uh, but with modern CPUs, this becomes more and more difficult because you're, the old space we used to scan is is you know been pretty well tested. So now you have to go and try different things in a, a different space in there. Um, there's a greater chance of crashing the CPU, which means you have to start all over again or freezing things. Or so it becomes more and more difficult to to go after some of these things. And what some folks have figured out uh, is that you can use speculative speculative execution to go down this path. So speculative execution, you know, is great in theory. Um, all this pipelining and stuff we have in CPUs nowadays to try and speed things up. But what we're seeing is uh, there's been all sorts of security edge cases around this one. So this is another one where basically it might not be your main execution path you're going down, but you can actually, as you know what you're doing with the, your your um, machine language coding, you can leave a, off a, an if branch, uh, have it go and try a CPU instruction, which doesn't exist. So without actually fully running that branch, you can get a sense for if it's going to crash or not. Um, which allows you to, it, obviously this is super complex and, and not something you just do on a weekend, but at the same time, it allows you to understand um, what's happening in that space if, if you're doing this in a much easier, more efficient way. So for some folks out there, that's um, hugely powerful. But it's just, to me, it was interesting, one, the actual use of speculative execution, and then let someone figure out how to do this. Uh, I thought that was sort of the, the fun part around this. Uh, Probably not going to be too useful on the day job, but maybe it is. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know that. Yeah, it's, it's not going to be showing up in my my daily work, but it's always fun to read about, and especially just the aspects of is this a you know what kind of side channel might this set up? Whether it's timing, uh, leaking bits of data, you know, leaking data one bit at a time, and if that data is coming out of a secure enclave and it becomes a you know you're you're getting key material, that could be pretty consequential. So definitely a potential for fruitful research um, for from an attacker's perspective, in addition to just a good educational. Um, for those of you who want to get down into the, the, the very deep innards of, of chips, 
Um, and that, I think, is a nice tie-in with this other article from Trail of Bits um, that was talking about how their coverage guided fuzzing with Honeybee, um, the open source fuzzer, and using the Intel processor trace. And essentially, this was a really, again, a, ni a nice write-up, really well written, um, that's giving some engineering insight uh, into the process of saying, ooh, we want to improve how fast, you know, the performance of doing fuzzing. There is a great processor um, capability that could help us here, but at a you know at first glance it looks like there's a significant overhead. Um, but what was really neat is that the um, intern here um, she did some great work on figuring out how to take advantage of this um, Intel processor trace, uh, which basically just says it can now demonstrate here is using Honeybee to fuzz a library um, and do it efficiently, even if you don't have source to help drive coverage of it. Um, are you able to trace through exactly what was the essentially the control flow of what the application was going through? And um, you know the point was made here is that now it's it's very fast using you know, Honeybee is very fast for open source projects like specifically being called out libpcap, libpng, and libjpg turbo, and especially those last two as image frameworks, image libraries that are quite common, well often used, um, very prone to vulnerabilities uh, because this is where user-generated content comes from. A lot of images, whether you're sharing those images on TikTok um, or Slack, Discord channel right now, or, or what have you, um, th those are great attack vectors and of course, great things to fuzz. So really neat research, really great write-up. And um, I'll just also comment too that uh, Trail of Bits on their GitHub repo not only has this write-up for Honeybee, but they also have a publications repo that has a a lot of great um, background and other research that they've done on various topics. So good reading material for, for you if you want to uh, just learn about some more areas of application security. Yeah, this stuff is, um, it's, it's a fun space. Uh, I've been playing with fuzzing, actually Fuzzbuzz, uh, since they were on the show. I've been um, working with them over the last month or two, um, looking at, you know, how does that, would that benefit us? How would it benefit us? Um, what can we find? Uh, so it, it's been an interesting process to actually go through this with a, a modern tool. So I think something like this, again, um, are we going to use this in our day job? Well, it depends. If you're using a commercial fuzzer, hopefully they'll use it in their day job. Um, it's, I mean, the, as you mentioned, the points of going through some of those uh, content libraries is, is um, very helpful for all of us. Um, I'm still the thing I'm struggling with right now with some of these, um, and I think this it's it's interesting to actually you know uh, really try and let the the rubber hit the road on these things and try to get a sense for what do you do with them. Um, it's difficult. It's expensive to set up a fuzzer. That's why you know again fuzzbuzz was uh, really caught my eye. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, um, you know you let that thing run, you let it find what it can. But it sort of comes back to similar to what we've been talking about, both the um, the MITRE attack, now that I think about it, uh, the, the matrix, as well as um, just the results of a pen test. Um, you show those either to another developer and say, hey, look, there's a buzz, the fuzzer found it, I need to fix it, or to management, whatever else. Um, the question comes back of, um, okay, you, you, you threw a machine at this for a week and it found this one little nitty gritty bug <laughs> is that really worth the time for us to to understand how to fix it and fix it or should we you know actually work about functionality and and you know keep keep the product growing and keep the customer base happy and that's 
this is what's been on my mind last week or so. How do you deal with this? What do you get as a result of um, a fuzzing library like this? Or, hey, look, we can fuzz faster. So the fuzz faster definitely useful, but I think it's it's um, it's interesting for folks to think about, not just as these tools get better, but what do you do with the results? Um, or, and then, you know, at that point, it's like, okay, well, if I can't use the results, do I, do I fuzz in the first place or what do I do? Or how do I rank the... Is there a way to rank the um, the results? So you know, almost like a CVSS score of the fuzzer found this and it's extremely exploitable versus the fuzzer found this and we never use that code. Um, so it's it's an interesting space, you know, not just the the academics, but what do you do with the results? Well, and th that's a great question because I think it ties to at least with a fuzzer, you know, a crash happened, so it can speak to software quality. But you know, th the more important aspect you're getting at is, do we spend a week of CPU resources to find that one issue and fix it um, that might not even be exploitable, um, or is that budget better spent? And again, I you know I really enjoyed our last segment on OS Top Ten with Andrew. It also speaks to that idea: should we be playing, um, you know? fixing one more bug in XSS or one more bug in SQL injection or investing that time into an ORM or into React framework or something else that's going to kill a particular bug class. Um, so yeah, I think that there is still, regardless of whether you're using fuzzing, what you're getting at in the sense of where do I prioritize my budget? And my budget means both money for tooling as well as that time to set up tooling and the time it takes for developers to respond to it. Um, that's not inconsequential. So I think those are great conversations to have in, in the sense of, what is the what, what's what's the what's the feedback we're getting out of this, and are we getting value? And I'm going to try to use that as a segue into the final article, real quick about Slack and just that idea too, in the sense of great, we've we've spent our security budget and we've we've done our framework changes and we've found, done some fuzzing or we've done some good security des, uh, design to say we're, we're immune to this particular type of injection attack or we're using libjpeg but we have it isolated in its own process that we're using rpc calls to, to shuttle shuttle data back and forth and therefore a, a compromise in libjpeg isn't actually going to expose any user data which actually is you know i want to say is great design good things to do but what this Slack, you know, the article about Slack, the recent um, response to it is still highlighting there are other threat models about the user population that are great to mature into. Don't just stop and saying, great, we use this React framework, we use this ORM framework, we use this other framework for CSRF. Our job here is application security is done. Um, there are other many other examples to get into of what's the context of how the data is being used. You know, Really dive into the throwaway line of business logic and understand what does that business logic actually imply for the user population. And uh, so that was my real quick way to try and bring us to a at least that um, comment there is we're running out of time on that article. Um, but John, let's throw it back to you to see if you'd like any any last words to close us out w with on either Slack or one of the other topics we hit on so far today. I'm good. Uh, this is, I mean, you know, it's for some reason just the thought on, on this one, it's making me, it, it feels like Uber management went over, management from the company Uber went over and took a jog at, at Slack, right? They were that much more, <laughs> we're going to slam ahead. And then as we meet resistance from cities, then we'll have to try and work and figure out how to, how to, how to do that. That's sort of the way this felt, right? We're going to put this thing out there. Then if people complain about it from a security point of view, then we'll sort of come back and not knocking Slack. I mean, I, I, I think we all understand why they did it, but still it's, it's, um, 
a little more uh, um, architecture to use. Again, our, our back to our OWASP conversation would have been nice to have a little more thought around that user architecture. Yeah, yeah, and I definitely highlight is the, the idea of education, educating that there are there are many more threat models than these. Um, than just talking about the, the injection vulnerabilities and the, the context of where output is being written to. Um, so with that, um, perhaps we would love to hear on our Discord channel, um, you know, what are some other articles or some other threat models that have been interesting in, in your environments? Or do you have some articles? We'd love to talk about more things around the how products are being designed in architecture. So send us out, dear listeners, um, as well as I will say we're going to send ourselves out as we've wrapped up near the end. Want to say thank you to John. Thank you to everyone else. And we'll see you next week on Application Security Weekly.